Well, as most of you know, we've had a series uh, about the church in, in uh, 1 Peter 2, and uh, I'm going to continue to talk about the church, but from a different angle, I'm going to use everything except 1 Peter 2. So, um, yeah, last night I was working on editing my notes, and four pages turned into five, so things are looking great. In my college and graduate uh, school years, my major was music theory and composition. And as everybody knows, you can make a killing with that degree. Uh, you have a music theory and composition degree? When can you start? Can you run a forklift? Um, but one of the courses that I took that I really enjoyed, it, it was called uh, Form and Analysis. And you would take a piece of music and you would analyze it and you would break it down into pieces and come to an understanding of, of the essence of that piece. And there was a music theorist who was born in the 1800s. He died in 1935. He's Austrian. His name was Heinrich Schenker. And he had this system of musical analysis that was complicated, but it was fascinating. And you would, you would analyze a piece in such a way that you would reduce it to its essence. And sometimes that would be three notes in this certain order, or it would be a chord. Or sometimes you would get it down to, to one note. And as I've been preparing for this message, thinking about the church and reading, the term, the attribute, intimacy kept coming back to me in my in my studies and thinking and the scriptures that I was reading and um, which makes good sense because God himself is a perfect picture of intimacy the Trinity which the men studied this morning um, and his his intimacy is something that he God enjoys in and of himself he doesn't need to be intimate with us and yet he wants to be intimate with us Verses in uh, James 4, 8, come near to God and he'll come near to you. Isaiah 73, uh, 28, but as for me, it's good to be near to God. So we have this God who wants to be intimate with us and he wants the same for the church. So uh, turn in your Bible, if you will, to John 17 and we're going to start there and we're going to travel some. But John 17, this is the, it's called the high priestly prayer. And Jesus begins by praying to be glorified. And this is right before Jesus is going to die. And he's not only just going to die, he's going to go through the most horrific death ever. And usually when people are about to die, they talk about things that are most important to them. And so listen as I read John 17. After Jesus said this, and after this, chapters 14, 15, 16, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And then he begins to pray for his disciples. I have, re I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. 
Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew a certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I pray, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they will, are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And then he begins to pray about us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am to, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. So, 26 verses, and of the 26, 20 are about the disciples and about us, about the beginning of the church. And over and over and over you hear, may they be one, may they be one in me, I, may they be in me as I am in you, you in me, in them, that the world may see, that they may know, that they may be brought to unity. And so this, this is Jesus' consuming prayer, even though he begins praying about being glorified. And the fact that he's going to die and the oneness that he wants us to have, he will lose at the cross when he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that unity that has been from eternity past is going to be scarred, torn just like the veil of the temple. But he's praying for us that we might have unity. And now for something completely different, as they say, in Acts chapter 9, please turn there. This is Saul on the way to Damascus. Saul has, uh, he, he's been 
torturing and killing Christians, followers of Jesus. And he believes that this Jesus guy, this fraud from, of all places, Nazareth, uneducated, nobody, that has caused this mess in Israel, Saul is going with the authority of the chief, chief priests to Damascus to arrest men and women that, who, who claim to follow Jesus Christ. So he begins uh, in Acts 9, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I just find that to be a strangely fascinating conversation. And as is often the case with Jesus, because Jesus asked lots of questions, he starts with a question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And here is Saul and his reply. I guess it was just a knee-jerk reaction. Who are you, Lord? And I think here is Saul, one of the most educated, well-versed men in Israel, knowing the scripture, and he doesn't know who he's talking to. Who are you, Lord? He recognizes this is from God, the light from heaven knocking him down. And Jesus replies, I am Jesus. That just had to raise the hair on the back of his neck, don't you think? I am Jesus, and what's worse, you are persecuting me. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Three days, he's in the city. He's not eating, he's not drinking, he's fasting. And gosh, you think about what could he have been thinking about? I think for one thing, he must have recognized God's kindness and grace and mercy. Good thing I'm not God. I would have said, there, that's enough of that. You're out of here. But God doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. And I think he must have just sat there, no food, no water, no sight for three days, and not knowing how long he was going to be in that condition and you'll be told what you must do. And Jesus saying, you are persecuting me. Saul's a smart man. You put two and two together. Well, I've been torturing and murdering followers of Jesus. And yet he says, you're persecuting me. This reminded me of Matthew 25, where it says... Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Again, this is the king talking. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you and feed you? 
When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And it seems to me that there's this intimacy from God's perspective is different from our perspective. We see through a glass darkly. But God has this intimate relationship with us, whether we feel it or not, or sense it or not. I think that's evident. And so, Saul is, is mulling over this, this you are, you're persecuting me. And the Lord sends Ananias to, to Saul. And uh, Ananias says in Acts 13, uh, Acts 9, 13. Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord says to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias brings up two issues, people suffering and authority. And Jesus takes that and he says, Saul is now under a new authority. He's under my authority. I am sending him. He is my ambassador to the Gentiles and to their kings and to Israel. And regarding suffering, he will suffer and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, Jesus doesn't sit Saul down and say, okay, it's going to be this, 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 and this. You know, Saul doesn't say, am I going to be, am, am I going to be flogged? No, it's worse than that. Am I going to be shipwrecked? Keep going. Uh, am I going to be lost at sea for a night and a day? Keep going. I'm going to make you a pastor. And a church planter. That's just a really poor uh, translation or representation of 2 Corinthians 11. So um, in, in 2 Corinthians 11, and by this time, well, so Paul takes, Saul takes on the name of Paul. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is dealing with these false apostles um, who were just making a mess in the Corinthian church. And so this is his response, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty one to 29. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. And, and, and Paul has tossed all of, of his history and what he used to be so proud of. And he's just, that's in his mind, it's rubbish. So, so bragging now, pride now is very uncomfortable for him. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. 
I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, total of 195. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in, dangers from the, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And then verse 28, besides everything else, and I'm thinking, besides everything else, that's not enough? But he says, besides everything else, I feel daily the pressure of my concern for the churches. And that word pressure in the Greek is it's like a rush, like a, like a wave coming upon you. And then he says, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin? and I do not inwardly burn. And Paul is, rep- is, is fleshing out this intimacy that he has with the churches, that he con- he's so concerned about the churches that he feels the weakness. And when they fall into sin and when they stumble, it just, he feels it. And I'm going to say this on behalf of the elder board, and I haven't polled our elder board, but I think they would agree. Every time we meet, we pray for an hour. And among the things that we pray for, we pray for you, you who are struggling, you who are struggling physically, you who are struggling with marital issues, whatever it is that we are aware of. We spend time praying. And while on the one hand, I feel, and I think the other elders do too, I feel a sense of rejuvenation, but I also feel those issues that we are praying for. And I think that's part of the oneness that we, that we experience in a, in a small way. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 to 11, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And he concludes with, and we, most of us know this verse, I think, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. There are many metaphors for the church, the body, the flock, branches, living building, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people belonging to God. And in Ephesians, Paul fleshes out what I think is the premier uh, representation of the church, the bride of Christ. 
Ephesians 5, he says, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's this mutual submission that he presents. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a profound mystery. And it's as if he's, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You know, I have read this passage many times over the years. And I just kind of would pass on by, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ. I'm thinking, well, he's talking about husbands and wives and relationships and all that. And he does. He goes on to say, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. But he references the very first wedding. He's talking in detail, verses 25, 26, 27, 29. He's talking about Christ loving the church giving himself for her, cleansing her, presenting her to himself as a radiant church without stain or, or wrinkle or blemish. And this is the bride of Christ that he's talking about. And so he references Genesis 2, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. This is a profound mystery. God made Adam out of dust. He took a rib out of Adam and he made Eve. That's a mystery. And then it's as if he took her down the aisle and presented her to her husband, Adam. And he points to that to point to the fact that there's nothing more intimate than a husband and wife in our experience and the church is to have that same type of intimacy. And he's pointing, not directly in this passage, but on and on. There are many, there's like 15 passages that reference the bride of Christ. Uh, at the end of Revelation, it talks about coming to the, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And every wedding that takes place between a man and a woman, since Adam and Eve to the time of the wedding of the Bride of Christ is kind of a billboard just because God created it. It's like Adam and Eve's wedding was the Alpha and the marriage of the Lamb to his church is the Omega, the first and the last weddings. There's a hymn that was written years ago um, 
because of an heresy that was going on in the church. And uh, I, I think it's, it speaks of this so well. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. Elect from every nation, yet one, or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. And this brings me to this. It has been said that 80% of people claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ believe that they can live a good Christian life outside of the church. How? I don't understand that. And yet I do understand that. Growing up in this culture, we reserve the right to make our decisions about what we will and won't do and what we will be a part of and what we won't be a part of. Our culture is very different from most of the world. Many times when I'm speaking with Hispanic friends of mine, uh, particularly from Mexico, but it's just a given. I come here to work and my money goes home. And they don't say it as if it's a sacrifice. It's just the way they think. Other cultures, your family determines what you're going to do, how you're going to live your life. But here, we reserve the right to make our own decisions. And so when we see the list of things, yeah, salvation, yeah, I want that. Um, commitment to the church, uh, involved in, involvement in other people's lives, yeah, well, if I have time. Um, I don't know if, that's, if you wrestle with that, but I certainly do. And I, you know, one of the things Jeff doesn't tell you when he recommends that you uh, have a reading plan of the Bible is that you'll find it convicting at times. And you'll read something and it's like, gosh, I need to change that. I need to deal with that. And then the Holy Spirit will come and underline that for you. And then sometimes Pam looks over my shoulder and is like, yep. <laughs> She's not here today. But our culture, you know, in Romans, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we are immersed in a culture as much as we are immersed in gravity. And we have to be, pro I have to be proactive in that regard. And I think this is a good test. When you think of sharing your faith, do you, have, do you ever think, why would I want them to do what I do? Why would I want them to live the way that I live? And I think to the degree that we are, our lives are di dictated by our culture to that same degree, I think we are missing out on the joy and the intimacy that God has designed for us. I have a friend who invited me recently to an AA meeting, uh, had not been to one. It was a Saturday. They were going to have barbecue. And Pam was at home and I didn't want to starve. So, <clears throat> so I went and I want to share with you what I observed in that meeting. 
I observed honesty, transparency, affirmation, confession and accountability, encouragement, prayer, intimacy, solidarity, joy, peace, humility, and kindness. In short, it was a good vibe. There was a cleansing atmosphere of that, that interaction between these people. And in talking with my friend later, we, he told me what the three pillars are for AA. Recovery, unity, and service. Well, that's, you know, recovery. Yeah, we, we say the same thing, only with more syllables. Sanctification, reconciliation, redemption. But that's recovery. We're being bought from the owner of this world by our Lord Jesus Christ and changed. We're recovering. Unity, we've been called to be one. As I, as I read in John chapter 17, Jesus was intent on our oneness. And service, serving each other is how we experience that unity. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's difficult, but you know we should keep in mind, well, this right here, Philippians 2, and I'll close with this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by coming, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Revelations 19, 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Pray with me. Lord, you have so many times made it clear in your word of your love and affection for the church that you created and that it is your desire that we experience the unity that you have planned for us, that we experience oneness. And Lord, for those who are physically unable to come to church and to be a part of a worship service, I pray that you will help us to reach out to them. Lord, let us use the oneness that you have given us for your glory and for our betterment. And so that the world will know that you have been sent here by the Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.